0: Hello and welcome to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. I'm Jenny Stevenson, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Bernstein. Today we will continue in our series on how to survive through adversity. Dr. Bernstein, or Peter as he likes to be called, is a coach and mentor with 49 years of experience helping people survive and grow through trauma, struggles, and hard times, the stuff of real life. The goal of our series is to help you discover what we've experienced, that adversity is more than a trial to endure. It can be an exciting opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive.
1: That's right. And as you're talking, hi, everybody. Good to be here today. Jenny's got the cold I had last week. She's got it this week.
0: Mm-hmm. We are we're, we're all very generous with each other. <laughs> yes, and
1: you know what? We are seeing so many people around here <laughs> that are sick, not with the flu, but with these colds. So we've seen plenty of it, and she was inevitable. It was inevitable that she'd get something. It's going to happen. But anyway, um, and she's going to be a trooper today. It's not too bad. And um, last week, I was told when people listened to the uh, broadcast, they heard me clicking on my cough drops because <laughs> I was coughing. <laughs> yeah, the, what was that clicking? That clicking what was, was that? me <laughs> trying not to cough while we were broadcasting. <laughs> But anyway, this week I'm not coughing and I'm not sick, so that's, that's nice. Yes. But you know, I was listening to what Jenny said, even in the introduction, and the one thing that she didn't say, and we don't build, it's not in the intro, is dealing with trauma and, and struggles and pain can also lead to healing, believe it or not. Most people who go into the professions of being a caregiver or first responder that can be firemen, policemen, nurses, doctors, counselors, um, so many different types of helping professions. Um, but you know what? I don't know one that hasn't had a traumatic past in one, in one way or another. From their younger years, from their uh, development, that there is trauma in there. And um, that's another dimension to this work that is bound to come up and get triggered. Why? Because when you do this kind of work, eventually it's so overwhelming at times and where we feel so powerless and we can't meet the demands of helping someone who's dying and we want to do more. Help uh, For first responders and firefighters to be in traumatically overwhelming situations, natural disasters, that you reach a certain point of such exhaustion and depletion, but it also kind of strips us down, and it brings us down to who we really are. Um, now, that's not the healing part at all, but it is one part of it that gives us a certain empathy, a certain compassion for people that are struggling and suffering and having difficult times. It does give us; it can give us that, but the one part of it that I seek in all of this, that I see is that people are seeking not just to help others, but in some unconscious way, they're seeking their own healing. And um, that's what we're going to talk about today. I'd like to have some continuity from uh, develop, because we're going to have some carryover from what we spoke about last week. And I'm going to let Jenny kind of reiterate some of that stuff, and then we're going to pick up on it, and we're going to carry it forward to some um, natural progressions having to do with our intimate lives, our, uh, our relationships, our home life, um, are all of that th- is affected. And then some of the things that go into some of these destructive behaviors, that we may be wonderful first responders, but that doesn't mean that we're doing a wonderful job in our personal lives. In fact, this, this is hard for me to f- swallow. But the divorce rate alone for first responders is between 70 and 80%. That's enormous. The life expectancy of a first responder is about 15 years less than the norm. The rate of cancer is so much higher for first responders, suicide's much higher. So we're looking at the kind of stress these folks are under, and uh, they're doing some f- incredible work. They really are. Um, I consider them my favorite workers to work with. I, I've seen them in action, I've been part of it, I've been personally I haven't been a recipient, but I've been with other people that have been, and these folks that we're talking about are very impressive. I call them diamonds and they're off but they are precious people. There is a, a similarity. It's interesting. We ran into this. We had a meeting this week, and we're going to have these folks, by the way, on our show very soon. Um, Ron Shule and Sue um, Farron. Sue Farron, and formed, they formed a nonprofit. He was a firefighter. who's retired now. Mm-hmm. And Sue was a first responder paramedic mm-hmm. and, uh, who developed serious terminal cancer Yes. and went through a divorce and went through some rough stuff that a lot of first responders go through but she lived and i think she came out of the cancer treatments excuse me i think it was 2016 but they're outstanding and out of that they now have um decided to put put together a nonprofit that would help first responders with the after effects of these traumatizing events and do something to address the mental health or um for promoting some kind of stability for first responders. And it's a very important program that they want to do. They're very enthusiastic about it. It's kind of new. And um, I'm excited to hear what they want to do. But anyway, they'll be on our program quite soon, I hope. And uh, they're nice people, down to earth, fine human beings, and have been through a lot themselves. But anyway, um, let's see, talking about them...
0: So last week, or at least on our last podcast, um, Mm -hmm. if you would like me to, I can just say kind of how we started on this.
1: I would like that because we're going to go into some of these things, and we feel these are ways for first responders to preserve themselves and to find resilience and, believe it or not, self-healing. And and that's a very important part of it. We're not talking about selfish self-healing. We're talking about something that brings... These, these wounds that we carry so deeply to the surface doing this kind of work does that. But it gives us a chance to either react destructively or to react positively and to find healing and restoration and renewal. And that's the road that we're on. We also know many first responders and alks, they don't do that. Um, and we'll talk about that. They They do other things instead that are very destructive. But I'd like to, Jenny, to just kind of reiterate some of the things we talked about last week and i'll comment on them with her Uh, but then we're going to carry this thing forward
0: yes before i do that i just want to say that when we say that many first responders and others in helping professions come to that calling needing healing themselves we're not critical in any way not at all Uh, because that often ends up having uh, creating empathy in them for the people that they're there to serve.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. we can speak for ourselves, and it's true. And beyond the professional training that I've had or whatever, I've never had the empathy that I have now, and that's because of what I'm going through. So, I mean, I, I think that that's something we can count on a good part of the time. And I think first responders are incredible people for the most part, I'll be honest with you. And what I love about them is they don't have the roles and the facades of... Um, Professionals who've gone through a lot of schooling and gone through a lot, and so they they live in this cocoon of self protection and intellect. They're not. That's not a first responder. No. They're not that smooth, and they're not that. They don't have that much of a facade. They're right out there on the first on the front lines. We we're, we're talking about first responders today. I find the same thing with wonderful caregivers. Same thing that. Um, they're on the front lines, and because of the kind of difficulties they're there to help folks with, help them with serious illness, dying and death, it brings them to their own... It forces a caregiver to look at themselves, and um, either they do that or their old traumas that they carry will begin to go into self-destruct. And that happens for first responders, too. Um and that's something that they're not always conscious of until it's too late. But we've talked about that a lot. We have, and we've talked about last week. We talked a few, a little bit about some of the, some of the things that we've developed and other people have about the pause, hitting the pause button, we did. the on button, the we off. We
0: started to talk about that again in this in this regard. We did. Uh-huh. What, where we started last week uh, was a recognition uh, that for first responders, and we were, I think we were particularly, uh, have been talking maybe more <clears throat> about paramedics, fire, police, um, people in those types of serving professions, how, um, how there is often little acceptance or understanding of the emotional impact of their work on them. And how the horrific things that they can see and end up taking part in can become an emotional burden. I know. And uh, unfortunately, at times, the lack of tolerance within the culture for that to be true. And a safe place for uh, an opportunity to, after something horrific has happened, some intense emotional experience for a first responder to be able to let down and work through what has happened to them.
1: Well, I know there's been a new emphasis, and I don't know how much the culture has taken on yet, but there's even legislation to help first responders deal with the aspects of how they've been affected mentally, emotionally, and physically uh spiritually, so that's a a relatively new idea. The military is trying to do the same thing, um, but really, uh, it's it's a hard one to change a complete culture. And uh, it's one thing to talk in theories about how to construct a very supportive program, and it's another one to be on the front lines when we're dealing with someone who's got serious post traumatic stress injury, um, and they're they're acting out some very destructive things. Um, it's. I don't think that it's just an intolerance. I think it's fearfulness. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen, and I don't have. I'm not saying I've seen everything, but what I've seen is that many, a lot of first responders look at someone who's got this as they're unreliable. That's the judgment. But you know what it really is? They treat them like it's an infectious disease, and they're afraid that their stuff will come out. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying they're totally conscious of it, but their attitudes and approach, and I've seen it, it can be like that many times. So um, it's not just with first responders, we saw it with military, we saw it with the SEALs, we saw it with Marines, we've seen it with lots of people that we, and we even on our own treatment teams, we're the same way. When we look at someone who's coping, one of our, our team members is coping with something that's been triggered in them and It's not infectious, but we definitely know they're not reliable and we have to do something to help them. So in other words, our approach is we take care of our own and we make sure it's a safe space and we know the things that need to be done um, to get them back on their feet emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually, psychically. We know how to do it, but we've chosen to take care of our own. We make our, I call it our space, a safe place, though, that if this stuff goes down, and it happens, that people aren't going to feel ostracized or cut off or cut out or uh, abandoned. It's nothing like that. We're judged. What they are is we certainly, certainly have to be aware of it because uh, it can be kind of de- destructive and sometimes very destructive. But we evaluate our teams all the time. And if we see that, we'll pull someone off the front lines, We'll put somebody else in, and we'll take care of our valued um, teammates. That's the attitude that I'm hoping, and I'm only I'm saying this because uh, I'm hoping that first responders begin to do more of. I've seen people that have had to leave the professions because they were treated like they had an infectious disease. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about a couple of detectives I know. Um Because, honestly, police are first responders, too. Mm -hmm. And so are other professions as well. Firefighters. uh, There's Mm -hmm. others. But, you know, I look at this stuff, and these folks need to have a a more positive, supportive kind of team approach to helping them uh, when they've been triggered, when they begin to lose their effectiveness, when they're exhausted. So it's got to be a much more positive environment. And that takes education and understanding and and empathy.
0: And that's why we're here, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's part of our goal. You've been listening to The Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma, 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. Today we are uh, returning and then going to move forward uh, from the topic we started with last week, which is the emotional burden uh, for first responders and the opportunity uh, that they need to have to be able to work through it, accept it in themselves, work through it in a safe and uh, healing environment and what happens when something when that doesn't happen? What can go wrong?
1: Well, that's, we've had plenty of that in the past, uh, where people who, were, who just felt like they are ostracized and they had to hide what was really going on to them as long as they could until it really exploded into some really negative, obvious behaviors. That means they burned out. That mm-hmm. means it's gone on too long and they didn't feel safe and there was nobody there to support them or they didn't feel there was anybody there to support them. Someone who has a post-traumatic stress injury may not realize there's plenty of people to support them and help them, but they don't trust at that point. They're not vulnerable. And um, we're going to talk about that today because that's that's a pretty important element. Um, when somebody who's been on the front lines as a first responder, um, we, we've talked about this in the past, how first responders of all kinds, caregivers, doctors, nurses, counselors, they're the more empathic type of persons. Now, it may take a lot of different forms. I think the first responders have the most rugged exterior. But inside, and I was telling some of my first responder friends, the the heart, the compassion, empathy is the same. There's a softness, there's a caring, there's a, a desire to give and help others, um... There's a deeper understanding of what people who are suffering are going through, and I think that all caregivers of all kinds share that kind of heartfelt compassion, um, compassion and desire to give desire back, desire
0: to help and serve,
1: and, and to help back. people. Right, to yes. help people who are really dangerous or difficult situations. Yes, um, and they're they're usually very empathic. Am I, say, I mean empathetic yeah. in the sense of how much caring there are. I'm thinking of a. a I know those first responders are uh, my favorite. But you know, I. <laughs> so I carry a lot of caregivers. But I, I remember a couple of times, as tough as their exteriors, and I think first responders are the toughest looking exteriors for empathic type. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I remember seeing where they were involved in some very difficult, heartbreaking situations. And they usually come in groups, teams. And uh, what I was really touched by was to see the tears in their eyes. And I saw this with some pretty tough guys. When they saw the heartbreak of a situation, they dealt with it beautifully. Mm -hmm. But their empathy and compassion was all written all over them, and that facade of being a tough guy, what was really, and women too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had some great women too, some of my best. Some of the people I really, who helped to start our nonprofit, were first responders, and one of them was a key woman in the profession, one of my very close friends today, best friend, and she's incredible. Um, what I've seen, though, and you know, you expect a woman, will help, they'll show more, tears um, (laughs) I've seen it on both genders and I've seen the heart of these incredible people and it's even more moving and touching to see someone who's so tough and so engaged with the difficulties and emergencies and crises of life be so touched by a human situation that is heartbreaking and I've seen the tears in their eyes and the caring Mm -hmm. more than once that's
0: that's the the um, thing that inside on the outside like you said they can seem so tough but on the inside they are sensitive people and as sensitive people tragedy is going to touch them that much more deeply
1: it does and i I, you know i think that uh (laughs) we all have an illusion that we make up about ourselves how tough we are some people are stronger and you know a lot of people consider me a really strong tough guy and i like that to a point but I'll tell you what, I also know that I have a side to them. It's just the opposite, That's soft and caring and vulnerable and loving and compassionate. Most of the first responders I know have that side too.
0: They do, and, and when you say that, what I am reminded of is through the years in working with you, how many men uh, have come to you, to us, who misunderstand or at least need encouragement To be a real man does not mean that you're going to be tough all the way through. That to honor a sensitive side is still manly.
1: In fact, it's more manly. It's for the, and I'm not talking about the people who run away. I'm talking about the people on the front lines. The real man. And I want to say this with both genders, because I know Mm -hmm. some very tough women in in the field that are astonishing. I call them diamonds in the rough and they're angels. We have one of them on our our team and she is incredible. (laughs) But, you know, she's got that exterior. Yeah. But what a heart and what a capable woman and we're so grateful for her. She's a first responder. She Mm -hmm. was a...
0: She was a paramedic.
1: paramedic. No, not a paramedic. EMT? EMT.
0: EMT, that's right.
1: Right. And she's like that Mm -hmm. and yet she's got a heart of gold and as sweet as they come. So I've seen... I've seen that, but it's even more moving to see someone who's so tough and sees themselves as tough and really does some really engaging, difficult work, have hearts of gold. They're amazing people. So I I don't see them as that different from any caregiver. We all have the same heart. And it usually has to do with having trauma and pain in our pasts.
0: We started. We started today talking about how uh, caregivers have, first responders, caregivers, uh, usually have their own traumatic history. That's and that's right. That there's the pluses and minuses. There, the pluses being they can have compassion and empathy, uh, but on the the minuses are that mm. it can come up and uh, cause problems for them personally right. and professionally.
1: That's right. And we've talked about triggering. Yes. And we've talked about, just earlier I was just alluding to the fact that you do this kind of work, we are stripped to our vulnerabilities. We're brought to the end of ourselves because we deal with such difficult, heartbreaking situations. It's just that it's not the norm for what everybody does in our life. It's a special calling. And when we're stripped that way, we're, we're forced to face ourselves in our own pain, in our own reactions, which most of the time, if you just leave them on our own, can be very destructive now. It may be in the past when they first developed, they weren't. But if it comes up now many times, it can be trouble. Um, we talked about that happens a lot. It happens with caregivers. We've seen teams of caregivers that we've helped. First responders, we've seen it in doctors and nurses, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen it in psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. We've seen it. We know about this. And one of the things that seems to uh, happen with these folks, and all of us, is that we ha- we come to a place that is very painful. Not just are we not because we're dealing just with very painful situations in the present. But it brings up the painful situations that we've sat on and suppressed for so long in our own lives, from our own histories. And when that comes up, what also may come up are the old defenses and the old reactions from those times in a a different time in our life. And they don't work now. In fact, they become real trouble. So, um, you know, we see our job as sorting that out. We have a way of helping people. Um, when that those tr- they they, get, they do get triggered, we expect it. What we want to do is prevent burnout. They will get everybody gets emotional fatigue, which is plenty difficult. But burnout is they're done. They're not going to do. They're not going to work anymore. They're not. They don't like it. They don't want to do it. They're resentful. They're bitter. They've had it. We didn't get to them early enough. Is the problem? No. no. And their pain has taken on such a destructive force in their lives that they can't work anymore it's just too stressful
0: we talked last week about how uh, a triggering uh, will send someone into a hyper alert state and that they can end up being stuck there uh, and then not be able to decompress and then they will quickly approach burnout and start Doing some of what you're saying about the old defenses and reactions that just don't fit anymore. Okay,
1: let's go back from what you just said. Yeah. You just read that last part that you Do you remember the sentence you just said?
0: I can try. It had a,
1: I was a mouthful. And there, was there was a lot whole lot
0: there. It was a quick summary of a lot of very, very. Okay, and what were, some this,
1: what were some of the c- concepts? I think we should get into it a little bit more than
0: that. I follow, was talking about, uh, we had talked about triggering. Right. And that on being triggered, we. Go into a state of hyper alert.
1: Okay, stop there for a minute. When when the kind of work we're talking about will bring in well, hyper alert is a hyper arousal state within our nervous system. Um, we share that in our primitive brain with all ma- all, all animals. We have it too. Um, when you deal with the kind of work we do, the danger, the emergencies, the crises, the the life and death battles that we're helping people with. The chant, we, are going into, we are going to be in hyperarousal. That means really being alert and being able to address these dangerous situations, whatever they may be.
0: It's a gathering of energy to be ready to do what has to be done. And
1: that energy is a must. Yeah. Those are the times, when we talk about pushing the on-off button and the pause button, that's the time that we have to push the po- off button for a while or the pause button. What's that mean? Even though we have been triggered and our own materials are coming up, Um, We've got to be very aware that we we have the old hyperarousal system and we have what's going on in the present. The present situation can bring up a state of being that's similar to the one that we were traumatized in originally ourselves personally. And one of the things that will happen, if that does happen and that hasn't been healed, is that the energy... That was locked into those old responses and that old experience is still there.
0: And you're talking about from the past experience. Absolutely.
1: So, what begins to happen um, with that old energy is that it gets re stimulated. It's there anyway. It never went to what the, the norm is, the, really, is that when the danger's over. The, the nervous system should diffuse, and it goes back to a more what they call a parasympathetic state. It means they go to calmness. Their feelings are safe. They let go of all that pent-up energy, and it's a completion of the trauma experience.
0: When I used the word decompress a moment ago, that's what I was talking about.
1: That's, that's what we are designed to do. Yes. The problem is that we have other ways of stopping that. Mm -hmm. We have what uh, our brain has a prefrontal cortex. We think we can actually stop the completion, interrupt
0: the incompletion. And I'm going to interrupt the completion by saying you've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We will be back to complete after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. We were talking in our last segment about triggering, and uh, we're talking p- specifically about first responders, but this happens to everyone. And um, the, the overlap that can happen uh, between the past and the present when something uh, traumatic, disturbing, uh, difficult, painful happens in the present we can uh, have our past come up at the same time if it's not resolved. And we were, Peter and I were just starting to talk through this process of triggering and then going into this ready to deal with it state of hyper alert, ready to deal with the energy that comes up to deal with the situation. Well,
1: the, you got the present situation. To be a first responder, to be someone who's. Um, uh, a caregiver all those things that's a unique calling not everybody has that not everybody's going to be thrust or choose to be thrust in these difficult situations right. first responders of all kinds do though they're not the ones that run away they're the ones that they're go the ones right. right okay but one of the things that we've said is there's something in them that has had trauma in the past has had difficulty in their past that drives that. Believe me, it's always. I've never seen not, it not be there in some form. But what we're talking about when someone's triggered, which is inevitable in this kind of work, where we're stripped to ourselves, is that it brings up um, and it, it, it unmasks a part of our unconscious and a part of our nervous system that's been locked in old trauma, where that hyper aroused state never got discharged, never got complete. So in the traumatic events, you know, the norm is to go through it, to definitely go on a hyper alert. Then when it's over, to discharge the energy and our nervous systems, and we go to a more calm, safe, comfortable state again. Well, with post-traumatic stress injuries, we don't go to that. We stay in the aroused state. In this kind of work, what happens is that is brought to the surface. And the nervous system is going to feel this incredible truthfully it has an intolerance of the discomfort and agony that it holds now if it's suppressed into the unconscious well you know it's there but it's not it's not exposed in this kind of work it's going to be exposed yes and what happens is the nervous system is doing everything it can to seek relief and completion of the old traumatic experience um and so it can get that resolved. So it can discharge that energy and that pain and that agony and come to a, p- a place of rest. That's the, that's the incompleteness of trauma. Okay, can it be re- completed and healed? Absolutely. But not necessarily through situations that seem similar in the present. And um, in, our old, in our old work, we used to call that state-specific triggerings. It meant like similar situations will evoke these these uh, old responses but they are not the same really they may seem similar unfortunately many times what happens is our old reactions come into the present because it's a similar situation and it's not the same the reactions and respo- reactions not responses aren't appropriate and they they cause trouble and then the ultimately what happens um um, not only does it cause trouble, but um, we develop these patterns of seeking our nervous system, our whole being, seeking this kind of resolve, release, and f- finish, hoping that something in the present that's similar is going to give it to us. It's the opposite. You can't. It's the opposite. And just we were going to talk about relationships today, which I think we ought to. um, The relationships of first responders suffer greatly. Divorce rate seventy to eighty percent, and you've got to wonder about that. What goes wrong? A lot goes wrong, but there's something that happens um, in in our in our personal lives that's a very interesting thing. Um, Many times people will find situations and relationships that are in some way are similar to the ones that they got hurt in originally. Um, there's some very uh, interesting stories and vignettes about about folks that uh, were their parents divorced when they were early or their families broke apart. We dealt with the Navy SEAL, if you remember. Yes. His family divorced um, at a very young age, and he was uh, uh, went with the mother. His father abandoned them, and then she remarried a guy that didn't like this navy seal but his family he was left with this pain of losing the loving family that meant so much to him and he kept finding situations that were similar and would create them where he would actually sabotage himself create similarities in hopes that he was going to find the love and the care that he lost with his family now remember the navy seal Yes, did. I do. And he was a an incredible, he was a hero. He was a corpsman, a, a medic. His,
0: his superiors loved him. And they loved Thought him. Thought he was a great guy. That's
1: how we found him. Uh, yes, yeah. they command came to get some us. help for him. Right. Well, what he, the Navy SEALs became the family he never had. Right. right. Um, and what really happened, I'll never forget, what used to happen is everybody every once in a while they would take a break. This unit would take a break. They needed it. Mm-hmm. And that, leave? Mm-hmm. And he would get triggered. And what would happen is it, re, it would, not consciously, but in the behavior, would remind him in his nervousness of an, the abandonment and losing his family. His family breaking up. And this right. was a guy who was not an alcoholic, but he would go out and binge drink and get DUIs. In the Navy SEALs, it only takes one, and you lose your security clearance. You're out of the SEALs once yeah. you get busted like that. Yeah. And this guy did. Was he a bad guy? Was he an alcoholic? And was it? The answer was no. But these triggerings came up, Mm -hmm. and he would act out the pain that he was still carrying about his broken family, and he would act it out in the present. Now, one of the things about drinking and drugs is a way for people to try to numb the pain they're in. That is a common thing that first responders of all kinds, Navy SEALs and many others, do to kill the pain, to to create some semblance of what they consider normal because they're in such pain that they want to feel something more stable they don't want to feel a lot, is the truth Right. so they drink a lot We, I know first responder cultures really reinforce that a lot um, the it's SEALs
0: a method of control, to control method of numbing yeah
1: and it's self-medicating. Mm-hmm. The problem is it complicates the situation and creates addictions. Um, this fellow was trying, he was in so much pain when his unit would break up temporarily mm-hmm. from his, his family breaking up that he could, really couldn't tolerate the pain. What did he do? He got loaded. And then he'd act out and get busted by the police. And he was, he was, he was asked to leave the Navy SEALs. Command loved this guy. This guy was a hero. Um, One of the things we also discovered, though, his personal life was in a shambles. And he had a very loving wife, I remember. She was, at best, a caregiver to this guy. Yes. There was very little intimacy. He wouldn't let down with her. She didn't know what was going on. She
0: knew there was something wrong.
1: She knew there was something wrong, but she was used to being pushed away. And because of SEAL secrecy, she didn't know very much about what was going on with her husband. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth of the matter is... He was afraid to be open with her, not to protect her, to protect himself from the pain that he was carrying. So what he would do is he created a relationship that really was no intimacy, no trust. Um, His wife was left feeling lonely and isolated with her kids. She was a pretty smart lady. She was a social worker, if I remember. She was. Nice lady. But she had had it. I Mm -hmm. remember she was in such agony over what she saw her husband going through and how abandoned and cut off and isolated she was that's a common occurrence that leads to divorces now we were able to prevent that one but we were down to the nub right at the end right at the end and um, he finally opened up Mm because he was in such trouble and she was relieved and then she knew what was going on and we all did what we could to help him he was Mm -hmm. a good guy um, and that included command. The SEAL command were wonderful to him. Yeah. They all loved him. But militarily, he was done. Um, I think yeah. he had two DUIs. It was the second one. Yeah, and yeah. he was done. He was and done. in the Navy SEALs, you lose your security clearance. You're done, as far as I could understand. Yeah. But one of the things we've seen is it happens with all first response. We've seen this, that what they begin to do is they find their personal lives dangerous, because when they come to their personal lives and their families and their lovers and their wives and husbands, that kind of is—that's when the off button gets shouldn't be happening, and that's when a good marriage has the on button is open. Intimacy, closeness, love, sharing, working things through. Mm-hmm. Well, Navy Seals are just one. I've seen it. firefighters, police—they don't push the on button. They keep it off. Now. They say, well, I want to protect my wife or my husband from all this. That's nonsense. It's not that. They're protecting themselves because they don't want to feel the pain they're in. Right. And when they do, they'll do anything to cut it off. Um, There's a number of addictions, of course, drugs, alcohol. They also get really, um, they begin to do dangerous things. They're hooked on adrenaline. I, I've been there myself. I know how good that feels. It's like a drug, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. The endorphins kick in, and you're, you're not feeling anything except really great mm-hmm. for a short period of time. So we've seen the first responder culture do this a lot. That's why there were divorce rates between 70 and 80%, which is horrible. That tells you how badly this thing has been managed. I know people want to want to make a difference and turn this thing around and turn the culture around and they should we we've we have always thought they need to but what we're seeing is the damage that intimacy warmth and closeness can bring out and remember when you're first responder navy seal whatever the situations you're normally called to respond to are dangerous they're emergencies they're crises and you can't be on with the on button you can't be vulnerable you got to be present and reliable and responsive to the situations that's appropriate yes the problem is that when they're let down and they go home or they go to personal lives letting down they carry it over and it some intuitive unconscious way it becomes a threat to them it's dangerous to let down so they cut they cut people off there was a really good movie i called um, american sniper Chris, it's a Chris Carl story mm-hmm. yes. I think we talked about it last week and I think one of the great parts wonderful parts to that story was he, lo- he was crazy about his wife beautiful lady and, but when he was in and he had been in so many uh, um, mis- on so many missions and, as a sniper um, when he came home he could not let down with his wife And she was desperate. She was raising his kids. She knew that he needed her and that he loved her. But he would cut her off. He would not relate to her. He wouldn't uh, open up to her. He was in terrible pain because she she saw some of his reactions that were inappropriate in the movie. Some of them were really inappropriate. Um, And she had to stop him at the last minute. He was unconsciously reacting, almost like out of muscle memory. It didn't fit the intimate personal life anymore, the civilian life. That was a great big part of the story. Um, It was a a true story, but, you know, it was interesting. I saw her interviewed years later after Chris was killed, and he wasn't in combat. He was trying to do something good for a brother Marine who killed him. But she said, she was a strong, beautiful woman, and she said, I knew that Chris was going to do something to get himself killed. She said he was destined to be killed, and um, I thought about that. And you know, this was a smart guy, mm-hmm. very savvy, very smart. And yet, he took a psychotic marine to a shooting range. You got to ask yourself, where was his common sense? Where was? You think, well, he was a do-gooder. Oh no, there was more to it than that, because a lot of people that go through difficult things and then they come home. Um, I've seen this with friends of ours. We've had him as guests. Randy Mayfield talked about this. He's on the front lines for years as a missionary in Afghanistan, Iraq, dangerous spots. He could not handle being home. He felt guilty that he had running water at home, that he had a beautiful wife and a beautiful life waiting for him. He could not relate because he just spent months and months with folks that didn't have running water who had been raped and mutilated and by, um, what was it, the...
0: ISIS. Yeah, ISIS, yeah. Yeah,
1: And he just could not fathom that he deserved to have this easy, good life. He couldn't relate to it. He had a lot of survivor's guilt, too.
0: Yeah, let's come back to that.
1: Let's survivor's come back guilt, guilt. Okay. Survivor's
0: guilt and not being able to come back to family life. You've been listening to The Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma, 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. In our last segment, we talked about, and I'm remembering it as these two kind of uh, opposing forces almost in what we've been talking about. One is after, um, after a, a, a traumatic, difficult situation and coupled with a traumatic history for someone like a first responder, um, there's the desire to go through and complete... Uh, this this great stimulation that has happened, that the nervous system desires to complete this experience. That's
1: not always conscious, though. And
0: it's not always conscious. And then there's the other side that is overwhelmed with the pain and the experience and the emotions and instead seeks to either numb it or contain it. And there's a battle going on. Uh, when we finished our last segment, we were talking about how difficult it is for veterans or our friend, Our missionary friend randy to come home after an intense experience either in battle or or on the front lines in other ways so there's this this interior battle going on um and i know just i remember when we were preparing for tonight you wanted to hopefully get to a little bit of reenactment and so i don't know if that can take i think we're getting in what we're we're going right there we're talking about
1: um we talked about survivor's guilt um, reenactment can be very much part of that um, what does that mean it means that our nervous system is running this is a show believe it or not and that primitive part of ourselves is affecting our thinking our behaviors in many ways when we are a first responder you're on the front lines that is going to be revealed and it, it's, it's going to draw it out of our unconscious it's going to bring it to the surface. And if it's been sitting, we've had a lot sitting there for a long time of pain and unresolved energy, it's worse. It's much more more compounded, and it's incomplete. Our nervous system is always looking for that completion, that resolution to the traumatic uh, stress reaction, uh, looking for the peace, looking for the rest, looking for, uh, if you're talking about someone who always... uh, is seeking, let's just use it, a, a bad relationship, someone who seeks uh, troubled relationships. They may seek it because it's so similar to the one that caused the pain originally. But do you know what they're really looking for? The love they never found. They just keep looking at for it with the wrong people.
0: They want the original situation to have turned out differently. Yeah. And so they return to it with other people hoping they can make it work out this time.
1: And they're looking, their nervous system is looking for the completion Yeah. that they never got. It doesn't work. No. Not that way. we have <laughs> I've never seen it work. But I know people do it. They're not always conscious of it, I'll tell you that. But that nervous system, that pent-up energy, that hyper state that never got came to peace and rest, drives the show. Now, do I think first responders have that? They have to have it. Because look at the kind of work they're drawn into. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous work. It's hard work. Most people, they look at it and go, that's better for somebody else, not me. It is a very demanding work. There's a there is a lot of adrenaline. It is dangerous, so you got to ask yourself about people that do that kind of thing. What are they looking for? Okay, it's there. You know, we all have things driving us. I, I as the work I've been doing for a long time. You, your the work you've been doing. We have that in us. It's
0: an aspect of and why. We're sure. Here.
1: The key is, can it be healed and completed? And the answer is yes, but not by reenacting it in negative ways. Um, when when folks. Uh, um, our our first responders, are, I'm thinking Navy SEALs and Marines, they come home, and their relationship—they're actually re- causing rejection. They're actually causing conflict and pain, and it's almost like you got to ask yourself, now what's driving them mm-hmm. to keep this up, to create divorces, to create
0: rejection or or yes abandonment yeah. or uh, any kind of negative uh, consequences.
1: Uh, uh. Okay, I just remembered somebody we helped a long time ago. He's a he's a Marine, and uh, he was married before he was a Marine. Young guy, and we knew his wife, lovely, good girl, and she adored. They adored each other. Mm-hmm. But I remember when he come back, when he came back, I think it was from Iraq. Um, he had so many missions. It was astounding how many missions he'd been on.
0: It was phenomenal. And
1: uh, he was a religious fellow, and I don't mean a fanatic.
0: No, his faith mattered to him. He mattered, right. Yeah.
1: And he came back a different person. Yeah. And uh, he had this beautiful young wife that was right there for him, and he wanted nothing to do with her. He cut her off. He pushed her away. um, He decided he wanted to become a firefighter, so he became a volunteer, and he'd stay in the firehouse. He had a lovely home, a lovely, beautiful wife at home. She did everything mm-hmm. to, to reach out to him. And I remember uh, when he finally opened up to us, um, he wanted to get rid of her. He wanted to break up the marriage. He did not want her anymore. And I remember he did some things that were very destructive that we had to stop because he was hurting her. And she was a nice lady, a really sweet woman. Um, and she was heartbroken. But I think one of the things that we found out is he came home feeling like he didn't deserve her. He came home feeling that um, she he was afraid, number one, that she, he was going to hurt her. Mm-hmm. And the other one was he felt after the tragedies that he'd seen, and he felt tragedies that he and his team caused too, yeah. that he felt so much remorse and guilt that he didn't feel worthy of her.
0: He no longer felt that he was yet you know, that he was worthy of her. That he was a good human being. He could not see himself as deserving a good life and a good marriage. So, do
1: you remember what he did? He started doing a lot of things to hurt to her, sabotage it, and to and to push her away. Yeah. And I think eventually he did physically hurt her. Um, I know because the father, who was a was a sheriff or a highway patrol guy, he he believed. was he was. I'm glad he was my friend. He
0: was having a hard time. He was himself back. he was very very. Yeah, he was, was furious. Yeah,
1: to say the least. And he still loved the kid, but he said I couldn't take his hurting my daughter anymore. Mm-hmm. But I remember I had to calm him down and say, "I'll take care of it. Just stay out of it." Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the, the the kid when he finally described what had happened in battle. Yeah. And uh, what he had gone through, and the people he had killed, the people he had seen being killed. I remember he talked to us about um, he lost all sense of um, military, code, military code ethics. Yes. And to him, the only rules we went by was if we saw somebody with a cell phone, we'd shoot him. Because he had seen so many of his unit. And um, somebody would have a, a cell phone, and they'd, and they'd trigger an IED, and they'd be killed. And he lost so many of his friends. Mm-hmm. And after a point, they all decided that anybody we see with a cell phone, shoot him. Yeah. And he said he knew he killed people, innocent people. He wasn't sure, but he said that's the way it was survival. Mm-hmm. And he was so fueled with not just anger toward himself, but regret and remorse. He also blamed God. This was a guy who loved religion and yeah. they loved God. Yeah. And he said, how could God let this happen? We couldn't even find out what is current status was in his thinking about God, couldn't even mention God to him, because his thinking was if there were God, how could he let this kind of how thing happen? How could
0: all of that have happened to him? Yeah,
1: you? so I remember eventually uh, I'll never forget this, we talked to him about, okay, well, take a break calm down he thought we were telling him to go have a, go get a divorce
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, put some space between him, well. not divorce he went to the uh, county courthouse and Draw up the divorce papers. The
0: other thing he wanted too was to get drugs.
1: He wanted drugs. He
0: wanted prescription medicine. Now, how many times have we
1: seen scenarios like this? Yeah. Plenty. Um, because he was reenacting things that happened. Yes. And he was looking for ultimately, I found these people, uh, and we've seen some of the others that didn't make it, they didn't want to live. They wanted to die. They felt so much guilt about what had happened, and guilt about people they couldn't save, that in part of them did not want to go on. And they set up situations that were so destructive, and what they were really hoping was that a similar situation would happen and somebody would kill them. And we've seen this happen in a, a number of times, but in less dramatic circumstances. We've seen first responders that have so much remorse, so much guilt, so much pain, that they just couldn't... They found their intimate personal lives were too threatening because it would evoke a vulnerability that they found to be considered threatening and dangerous. So they would... would, You know, for their wives or husbands, it was like walking on eggshells. They had to be so careful. They became nothing but caregivers. And they were lonely, and they were isolated and hungry for the love that they thought they had. And we've seen that backfire so many times now Um, so we're looking at reenactment and how serious that dilemma is Um, we're looking at how uh, people when they're triggered can actually reenact these old destructive things without even being aware of it and redesign situations in the present to almost look the same as these past situations and what they really want is completion They just look for it in the wrong ways very destructive very painful and they hurt a lot they hurt themselves but they hurt others either physically but many times emotionally yes yeah so we have seen a lot of this
0: and then they and then Mm. they end up not finding what they're looking for and the problems just keep reoccurring that's
1: what happens it's a cycle that keeps until there can be a transformative kind of resilience that takes place which is what we help people do with when they re- is help them recover. With that. that's right. And there is a way to complete and heal. There
0: is a way, absolutely, to decompress and heal and stop that, that that destructive cycle of reenactment.
1: But you have to go to the biological side of where the energy is being trapped. You can't just go to someone and I don't psychoanalyze them.
0: It's not just it in, does it work. in talk or in your head, that's right. And we will continue. Okay. Good. The Survivor's Guide to Life is made possible through a grant from Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment, a 501c3 public charity that relies entirely on donations from people like you. If our podcast and the information we provide has benefited you or someone you care about, please consider supporting us by going to sctraumatreatment.org and click on donations. We're also on social media. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and our podcast is on all sorts of outlets. Um, Our website is thesurvivorsguidetolife.com. You can reach either Dr. Bernstein or myself at 707-781-3335. And I want to add that some of the resources that we've been talking about today on relationships and trauma and reenactment are available. If you get in touch with us, we'd be glad to send it to you and my email is is Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, at Bernstein Uh Thank you so much for
1: listening. And remember, there is healing and hope available.